Let us pray. So, Father, we do indeed pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, dispel the darkness in our lives and the world around us. Fill us, your people, fill your church, fill the world with heaven's peace. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. So glad that you're here. And good morning again to everyone watching via the live stream. We're so glad that you've joined us as well. It's been a busy week at the church. I'll have some more updates and some information to share a little bit later. But we had our monthly food giveaway yesterday, and I don't have an exact count, but we served somewhere in the area of about 175 families from our community um, with with boxes of, of food and fresh produce and fresh baked goods and meat. So again, thank all of you who so faithfully serve and support that ministry in so many ways, both here in person in preparation during the food giveaway and also through your um, support both in food items and in financial donations to continue this ministry as we reach out to our neighbors. Continue today with our focus on our Old Testament readings from the prophet Isaiah as we have been throughout Advent. And this morning's text reminds me, I'm going to really date myself, of uh, the worship chorus that um, I knew singing actually just 10 or 12 years ago when I was in youth group. Um, <laughs> yes, just 10 or 12 years ago. Some of you remember too, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. Now I'll really embarrass you. Who remembers singing that song? Yes. Now, I'm the youngest one in the group that said that. No, just kidding. Um, but yes, so that came to mind. But looking at Isaiah chapter 35, which is only 10 verses, Isaiah 35 depicts a beautiful prophetic picture. It's a picture in continuity with that which we've seen in our Old Testament readings for the past two Sundays in Advent. And today, this third Sunday, we see it again in Advent. And today we, we lit... Um, the rose-colored candle is not pink, it's rose. Um, and we do that because today is in Advent, the third Sunday in Advent, what the fancy name is Gaudete Sunday, which is Latin for rejoice. Today is the day of rejoicing in Advent. The candle we lit is the candle of joy. In some churches, actually, the, the paraments on the altar and the vestments that clergy wear are rose-colored for this day as well. But it's a time reminding us to rejoice because of what God has done and is doing on our behalf through the advent of our Lord. It's joy that is filled with hope and promise and has its root and origin in God. Because true joy only comes through a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 35 points to this reality that true life, the life of God, the joy of God, and the transformation of God come to God's people through Jesus Christ. And again, like our Old Testament readings from the first two Sundays in Advent, we see in the promises of Isaiah 35, we, or we see them being fulfilled in part in Isaiah's day among God's Old Testament people continuing to be fulfilled with Christ's first advent and in the church age and finding their ultimate and complete fulfillment with Christ's return, his second advent. 
there are three key aspects of Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 35, which I want to focus on in our time together this morning. And the first aspect is this. God makes all things new, verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah, the wilderness and the desert are a type or a word picture representing everything that has been destroyed by the enemy. Now, let me just speak briefly, and I'll try to do this in very basic terms because it's a much longer conversation. A type in Scripture is kind of a prophetic word picture. Um, An example of this would be the Old Testament sacrificial system, particularly with lambs, was a type pointing to the one who would be the sacrifice for sin. That's why John the Baptist then identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, to be clear, when we speak of a type in Scripture, Scripture always makes clear that we're speaking of a type. So we have the lambs in the Old Testament. John explicitly makes clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic picture. He is the fulfillment, in a sense, of that typology. It is not, a type is not allegory. Um, allegory, sometimes folks take things in Scripture and they look for the hidden meaning, but that meaning needs to be anchored in the whole counsel of God's Word. And many a erroneous teaching and many a heresy has grown out of folks taking something in Scripture and attaching all kinds of symbolism and meaning to it The Scripture never says that it had. A funny story with that I recall, you know, there is typology to be clear in the tabernacle in the wilderness um, fulfilled with God dwelling among his people in the Old Testament. That is clear, but not every little bit of the tabernacle in the wilderness has prophetic significance. As Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser once said, some of the pegs were there because you had to hold the thing together. In the immediate context of God's Old Testament people, these verses that we're looking at, verses 1 and 2, speak of the devastation Judah is experiencing through being overcome by her enemies and being swept away into captivity. But there's much more than just this being said here. Keep in mind, as we've talked about typology, but also keep in mind the whole concept of the eye of the prophet that we talked about a little bit last Sunday. The imagery of how prophecies can have multiple layers or multiple eras of fulfillment. The picture here is one of desolation. It's a picture of a desert, a wilderness area. And I would say don't think of and this is my terminology, kind of moderate deserts like you might see in some parts of Texas in our country where stuff still grows, but think more of Death Valley or perhaps even more clearly the Sahara Desert where there's just miles and miles and miles of sand with absolutely nothing. And there's nothing in those desert sands to give life, no nutrients, the gardener is coming out, no beneficial bacteria or fungi to facilitate and, and foster life, no water. There's nothing there to cultivate or sustain life. And here in Isaiah, the bigger picture is of all of humanity, devastated by sin, no life of God in us, and the total inability to do anything to produce that life in and through ourselves of our own efforts. 
But God's prophet here paints a picture of this desert, this parched wilderness, absolutely lifeless, becoming like Carmel or Sharon, the most fertile and beautiful regions known by all God's Old Testament people at that time. The desert itself can never produce this kind of glorious life. But God and God alone can take such a place, and he, by his power, can transform it. Ultimately, all of this gives us a two, later, a twofold picture. I'm going to do the latter part before I do the first part. First, with Christ's second coming, which is yet in the future, with Christ's second advent, God will restore all creation to its state before the fall, with a new heaven and a new earth. But more immediately for you and me this morning, this is what God can do and has done in so many of our lives through Christ's advent. God has taken us dead in our trespasses and sin, as Scripture says, and he has poured his life into us, and he has made and continues to make us new creations. For those who are in Christ, he makes all things new by his grace and by his transforming power. As St. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. God indeed does make all things new. The second thing we see here is that God renews us in his strength, verses 3 and 4. In light of God's transformative power, of that which is dry and without life, i.e. the desert or the wilderness or the human soul, God calls his people to be strengthened. He calls us and makes it possible for us to be strengthened both directly by him and also by each other. Look at the wording of verses 3 and 4 with me. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We're talking about someone in a state of being overwhelmed by the cares of life and the, the challenges. And we hear strengthen, make firm, say to those, what we have here really is a description of strengthening someone whose inward condition is represented by an outward manifestation. It's kind of like someone in a difficult situation. We've kind of all been there where we just kind of throw up our hands because we just can't in ourselves find a way forward. And it's that sense of helplessness and inability to do anything. Funny story along those lines. Um, many years ago in Tammy's home church in Southern California, they were having they had a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service. And Sunday evening, people were often um, given an opportunity to share answers to prayer and testimonies and that sort of thing. And one of the ladies in the church, a dear lady, um, who did not like driving on the freeway around tractor-trailer trucks, was driving on the freeway. And any of you, how many of you have driven in Southern California? It's kind of like I-95 around Lorton on steroids. Um, Mother Valerie shaking her head yes. And... So this dear lady shared how she was driving on the freeway 
And all of a sudden she realized she was surrounded by tractor trailer trucks, which made her very, very fearful. One in front, one in back, one on both sides. And she shared how she closed her eyes and took her hands off the wheel and threw them up and cried out to Jesus to deliver her. And then she continued by sharing that when I opened my eyes and looked around, all the trucks and cars on the highway had moved away from me. <laughs> <laughs> that is a true story. I don't recommend doing that. Yeah, if you're uncomfortable driving with what you're surrounded by, it's okay to cry out to the Lord, but do not close your eyes. Do not throw up your hands on the freeway. Um, the Lord can hear you just fine without taking those steps. But God does indeed come to the, the aid of his people both directly and through other believers. And this through other believers piece we heard about even in our New Testament reading from James this morning. And we, brothers and sisters, are called and empowered by God to aid and support one another in times of difficulty and distress, in times of fear. And talking about this, none of this denies the reality that every one of us at times faces fears and we face struggles. But God will help us. We are called to help one another. You know, sometimes you hear it said, there's a cliche, which um, I don't like. You're going to find that out as I share this. You'll hear people say, fear is the opposite of faith. Well, no, that's not really scriptural. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Fear is human. But faith is... Faith and trust in God operates in the midst of our human frailties. It operates in the midst of our human fears, and it transcends them and takes us through those times. I don't think it's a stretch to say that some of the great martyrs of the faith were probably fearful in that moment. Not necessarily fearful because of death, because they know what God had promised. But when you know you're going to be horrifically tortured and made a spectacle of, I have no doubt that some of them were fearful in that moment, and yet they were faithful. They stood fast. They demonstrated fidelity to God despite their fears. God comes to the aid of his people. Sometimes God's aid comes in different ways than we think or expect in our finite understanding, and he may not do or take us out of the situation, but he may guide us through and in the midst of it. But God does ultimately bring deliverance. And God indeed does act on behalf of his people to defeat his foes. God does and will come to judge the enemies of God and of God's people. But God's deliverance through his coming to us in Christ is not just a deliverance from outward foes, from personal enemies. It is also a deliverance from our greatest foe, sin and its consequences. And only God can do this. Verse 4, He will come and save you. And when God comes, when God saves, He transforms and He never leaves us the same. And that brings us to our last point this morning. God radically transforms His people. Verses 5 through 10. God transforms us, and by his grace and power, he makes a way for us to walk. And again, he makes all things new. All that stuff, all that junk in the past, God can make all of that new in our lives through Christ's transforming power. 
Let's look at a, mo a moment at our gospel reading or part of our gospel reading from this morning. Matthew 11, 2, for si 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are clans, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When Christ came near to people following his first advent through the incarnation, during his earthly ministry, radical things happened. Yes, the blind and the deaf and the lame were healed. Lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised. The poor and those pushed to the margins had the good news of the gospel proclaimed to them. We see this affirmed in these verses from Matthew. But it wasn't just the physical healings. It wasn't just the miracles. As Edward Young says in his um, classic commentary on this passage from Isaiah, in the performance of his mighty miracles, Jesus Christ showed that he was divine, but the present passage, now speaking of Isaiah in reference to Matthew, teaches us far more than that these miracles will be performed. It teaches a complete, all-embracing, radical change. In other words, God changes all of those things, but he also changes us and transforms us from the inside. And he has made for us a way to walk with him, for us to walk in God's character. Isaiah 35, 8, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. God's path for those who are in Christ is clear to us. Even in our foolishness, the path remains clear. It's not like a subtle path on the beach with sand where you're walking and all of a sudden you look back 50 feet and the wind's blowing and, and your footprints and all are covered in and you really can't see the way forward. That's not the way this path is with God. It's much more like some of the rural roads up in Hartford County, Maryland, where Tammy and I lived before we came here. I can remember driving on some of those rural roads that had been there as now paved, but had been there for several centuries, going back to the colonial period before the American Revolution. And some of those roads were deeply furrowed, meaning that when I would drive in my truck, the banks on the sides of the road were above the roof of my truck. That's how long those roads had been there. And they had these huge banks with large oak trees. I mean, literally some of them four, five, six foot in diameter at their base and the roots growing out of the banks. And you're driving, it's almost like you're in a semi-tunnel. But that's the kind of path God gives to us. More like a deep-rutted trail. We can make no mistake about what the path looks like. People all around us in the world wander with no sense of purpose or meaning and no clear destination. But for those who are in Christ, for you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, we walk with Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he makes his paths clear, his paths for holiness, his highway of holiness, if you will, as Isaiah says here. He shows us that way. 
and calls us by his grace and transforming power at work in us to walk in it. And as we do more and more fully, we return to God, to that place of abiding and dwelling and living in his presence, filled with his joy and filled with hearts that are rejoicing. And as Isaiah 35.10 says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, come to God's presence with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In this season of Advent, may we reflect and ponder these profound truths of God that in Christ's first coming, he has made, through that, he has made a way to be set free. He has made a way for us to walk with God. He has transformed us and is making us new creations in him. May we be reminded that we can walk in his eternal peace. And as we do that, we continue to prepare the way. We continue to be God's ambassadors of light and life as we await the full consummation of his kingdom with his second advent where he will finally and completely make all things new. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at your promises. We marvel at your goodness and grace and your transforming power that you would take such as us and make us new creations transforming us and making all things new, making us new creations in Christ. So, Father, fill us with joy on this third Sunday of Advent. Fill us with a sense of expectation, Father, of the good and gracious work you will continue to do in us and through us as we walk your ancient paths. And, Father, fill us with hope and your peace, knowing that you will set all things aright. And with Christ's return, we will see the full consummation of your kingdom. We ask these things in his name. Amen.